following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. So children, sometimes something is very clear in your mind. You know that you said something or that your mother told you something and you're absolutely convinced that you're correct. When in fact, you're completely confused. Uh, You're wrong. But because you are so convinced that you are right, you will argue with another person or with your parent until the sun goes down. We do that as well as adults. We sometimes think that we have said something to our spouse or to our children, and and we're convinced that we had. And uh, we will argue, well, I I told you that. I said that. Uh, When in fact, uh, we haven't said that or we haven't done that. And that really comes out of this sense of, of pride and prejudice, that we are convinced, like the person who says, My mind's made up. Don't confuse me with the facts. That's what we're like. Now, that's what Zophar is like now as we come to his speech. This is the third speech of round one between Job and his counselors. And Zophar, who is the youngest of the three, has been impatiently waiting his turn. Now, we know that Eliphaz, the elder statesman, came with some diplomacy and and some compassion. Uh, Bildad comes coldly and analytically and and, uh, has no compassion. And now young Zophar comes on the scene like a a flash of lightning or a burning missile. He's been sitting in the corner waiting his turn. And he has not heard a word that Job has said. So he's going to speak to what he thinks is true and what he thinks Job has said. Now, what makes it all the more interesting is everything that he says about God is absolutely true. In fact, this is one of the the finest descriptions of God and his infinity that is found in all of Scripture. If you look at your Westminster Confession of Faith, it's a proof text for the infinity of God. Uh, But uh, Zophar's problem is that he has not listened, he doesn't understand, and he's misapplying then what he thinks. We then need to be aware of the danger of responding to people or God out of pride and prejudice. Or be careful because of prejudice and pride how we deal with people and with God. Two simple points. Two bewares. Beware of your prejudice. Beware of your pride. Well, we first see this caution against prejudice in Zophar's opening remarks in verses 1 to 4. Then Zophar the Namathite answered, Shall a multitude of words go unanswered, and a talkative man be acquitted? Shall your boast silence men, and shall you scoff and none rebuke? For you've said, My teaching is pure, and I am innocent in your eyes. So far accuses Job of three things with respect to 
how he spoke, and then of two things about what he said. He first accuses him of misspeaking in three ways. In the first place, he accuses him of seeking to simply overpower, overcome his enemies with a multitude of words. Should a multitude of words go unanswered and a talkative man be acquitted? He's basically saying, Job, you're just trying to pound us down with sentence after sentence and paragraph after paragraph. One time, uh, Dr. Palmer Robertson said of a colleague that uh, he can't convince you by his arguments, but he will talk you down until you will say nothing else. And that's really what Zophar is accusing Job of doing, of simply multiplying one senseless word upon another so that in the, the abundance of his words, they'll simply be silenced. Now we know that there's danger in a multitude of words. There's a sin, says Solomon in Proverbs. Uh, and that Job himself has uh, misspoken himself, and he has said too much. But he's never tried to silence his enemies by merely heaping words upon them. The, the second accusation has to do with his, uh, what he says with respect to men. Shall your boast silence men? I think the authorized version says, shall your lies. And this word boast is translated boast, uh, babblings, I think, in the ESV, lies in the authorized version. All of those things are true, but uh, particularly here, I think he's saying, shall your misconceptions about your lot silence us? The, the babblings that pour forth from you like an artesian well, uh, the lies that you are spitting out, are we to be silenced by those things? Of course, his answer is no. And then he says, shall you scoff and none rebuke? And this word scoff is the word mock. He's now accusing Job of mocking God. This is the word that's used in Psalm 22, 7 of the mocking of our Savior. All who see me mock me, that's the word. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. And you remember how they treated Christ as he was hanging on the cross, they passed by, deriding him, wagging their heads, saying, you should, who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. We will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And so... So far, is accusing Job now of actually mocking God by what he has said. Now, what Job said in 10.3 was, Does it seem good to you to oppress and to despise the work of your hands and favor the designs of the wicked? There was a question in prayer. The question of this man who has lost all sense of God's kind presence. Or with respect to God's word. Um, he uh, in no way despises the word of God. He's seeking God. He's not seeking to overcome his friends with his speech. He's not seeking to uh, dishonor God by what he asks in prayer. He's searching. But you see, we can learn from Zophar's problem. And that is because he's approached Job with the presupposition 
that Job is this gross sinner. And thus, obviously, everything that Job is saying must come out of his sin. Moreover, he hasn't heard what he said. He's been over in the corner scribbling, writing down all of the things, all of his arguments that he's going to give against Job. He's going to be the one that steps forth now and wins the day. He'll be the one that silences Job. And so he hasn't listened. He hasn't heard a word that Job said. We have to be careful about that in our own relationships. We must be careful to listen uh, to our children and hear what they have to say to one another in, in relationships. Uh, when we're involved in counseling or, or giving comfort or counsel, we must learn to listen before we speak. If we're involved in uh, contending for the truth, which we're supposed to do, we need to learn to listen before we speak to make sure we hear what the other person is saying. So far, I didn't do that. And he simply attacks Job for his multitude of words. And then, secondly, he accuses Job with respect to what he has said. And we see that in the uh, next two verses. Or the next verse. You've said, in verse 4, my teaching is pure and I'm innocent in your eyes. Now, again, he simply wasn't listening. Uh, Job uh, did say his teaching is pure. He said that he had not denied God's word. That he was orthodox. There wasn't a thing in his life that had, in his whole history, where he had ever gone against the, the, the truth that God had revealed, the truth that he knew about God. And it wasn't wrong for Job to say that, no, I'm not unorthodox. No, I'm, I'm holding to what I believe the word of God teaches. And then he accuses him of claiming to be innocent and take your eyes there as in the eyes of God or in the eyes of his friend. Well, see, Job never said that he was not guilty. In 10.7, he asserted that God knew he was not guilty, but it means blameless there. That, I mean, it means uh, of a relative righteousness. He said that I'm innocent. And by that he meant that he was, he was blameless as God himself has declared about him. He was living, walking uh, as, as a whole person uh, in, in the presence of God. And so he never claimed not to be a sinner. He's already confessed his sin. He's confessed the need to be justified by faith alone in Christ Jesus by which his sins were pardoned. And he was legally righteous in the sight of God. And so again, Zophar has not listened. And because he hasn't listened, he hasn't understood. Because he was prejudiced against Job, obviously anything that Job said had to have been error. We do that, don't we? Sometimes interacting with people, maybe they've not been trustworthy. Maybe we simply have personality conflicts or whatever. And we simply assume whatever comes out of their mouth is wrong. And that's wrong. We must learn to listen. We must learn to measure everything by the word of God and not jump to these hasty conclusions that uh, Zophar jumped to when he says, accuses Job of claiming that, his, or that Job was wrong for saying his teaching is pure and that he is innocent. He is innocent. He was not deliberately living in sin. You and I need to strive for that innocence as well. We need to be striving that we're not living in sin. That we can say with a good conscience, I'm innocent. Now that first thing that means is I live uh, with daily confession of sin. 
I'm in the pattern of repentance and, and confession. And as we do that, we're innocent. We have this, this blamelessness that Job had in the sight of God. And that should be our desire as sons and daughters. of That should be your desire as children. That even as little young ones, that you, you keep short accounts with God by the confession of your sins and by um, seeking to live by God's grace according to his law. So we must beware of the prejudice that will cause us to treat others wrongly. Now, more importantly, we come to the real good part of this text, and that is we must also beware of a pride that causes us to misunderstand God, treat him wrongly. That's what so far is doing now in verses 7 through 12. In verse 7, excuse me, verses 5 through 12, in verses 5 and 6, he calls forth the perfect wisdom and righteousness of God. Now, everything he says here is true about God, but notice what he's doing. In verse 5, but would that God might speak and open his lips against you. Zophar is so convinced that he's right that he now calls upon God as his primary witness. He says, oh, I need God now to come. God needs to testify. God needs to convince you of the things that we are saying to you. Now, now the irony is he's going to talk about the inscrutable wisdom of God. And yet this man, well, he thought he knew God's wisdom. So even as he claims it to be an inscrutable wisdom, he claims now to be the one who's speaking on behalf of God. So he appeals now both to God's wisdom and to God's judgment or justice against Job, calling God, come alongside the three of us now and convince Job that he's wrong. In the first place, he says in verse half of verse 6, that God would come show you the secrets of wisdom, for sound wisdom has two sides. Let's start with that second um, clause. Sound wisdom has two sides. Literally, it is sound wisdom is twofold. And it simply means that God's wisdom is manifold. It is far beyond our understanding. So he calls it then the secrets of wisdom. Matthew Henry says these are God's state secrets. These are things that he's kept enfolded in his own mind and heart. Uh, this is the wisdom of God. Notice we're going beyond the knowledge of God. Of course, God knows all things. But the wisdom of God is how he applies that knowledge in his perfect power to accomplish his perfect will. Now, this is the very thing that Job's wrestling with, you see. Job does not know the secrets of God's wisdom. He doesn't know God's state secrets. He knows God's wisdom is manifold, that it is doubled, that it is beyond comprehension. And that's what he's crying out for. Oh, Lord, show me. I don't understand. You've been my friend. I've lived in the sunshine of your presence, and now there's but a dark cloud between you and me. You've become my enemy, as we saw in the last two messages in chapter 10, that he's lost sight of God's Goodness and gentleness, he's lost sight of God's fatherliness. And God was simply a, a distant, angry God who is sovereign and all just and all wise. 
Yes, Job was longing to know God's wisdom, but Zophar thought he knew the answer, you see. And there's the irony, notice it. He comes to show you the secrets of wisdom, and sound wisdom has two sides. <laughs> but he's claiming, I know. I know what God's doing in your life. I know that he's punishing you uh, for sin. I know if you simply repented that God would restore you to all of his favor and all of your material blessings and prosperity. You see, he was approaching God with pride. The same thing then with respect to God's justice in the end of verse 6. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. Now here he's saying that Job, God has not begun to punish you according to what you deserve. You need to understand that. <laughs> Remember what Job's been through. Nothing these men have ever, ever experienced. But uh, God's not even begun to deal with you as, he, as you deserve to be dealt with, Job. Because God is this just God. And he is punishing you according to your sins. And he could do a lot more to you if he wanted to. Now, in many ways, all that is very true. There's not one person in all of this life. He's ever been punished according to the deserts of his sin. Only in hell will a person be punished according to the deserts of his sin, and that takes all eternity. But, but the other thing that Zophar does not understand here is that a believer is never punished for sin. Right? No, a believer is being chastened because of sin. This is where Zophar gets off the track. All chastenings are punishment for sin. And he's failed to understand that, no, Job's being chastened. But more importantly then, that he uh, fails to uh, understand that um, God does not deal with us according to our sins as his children. As David says in Psalm 103.10, he does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And that's wonderful, isn't it? Remember when God manifest his goodness in Exodus 34, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger. He's so slow to anger. And so, you know, in one sense, so far, is absolutely right. None of us is dealt with as our sins deserve. But for us, that is because Christ has been dealt with as our sins deserve. It's because of the perfect work of Christ who soaked in all of God's judgment against sin into his own soul so that you and I could be pardoned from sin and that even in our chastening, God is forbearing and long-suffering with us. We rest in Christ and we thank God because of that that we can have this confidence expressed by David. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. So in his pride... Zophar misunderstands who God is and misapplies. Maybe better, he misapplies what he knows that God is and does. But then the greater hubris is what he then says in verses 7 to 12. He moves now from these two attributes of God, we shall say, his wisdom and his justice to the nature of God, to his being. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? 
Its measure is longer than the earth, broader than the sea. If he passes by or shuts up or calls an assembly, who can restrain him? For he knows false men. He sees iniquity without investigating. An idiot will become intelligent when the foal of a wild donkey is born a man. These might be the profoundest words declaring God's infinity in all of the Bible. And we do well just simply to ponder what the Spirit shows us here in recording the speech of Zophar. He speaks first of the incomprehensibility of God. He says, can you discover the depths of God? The word discover actually comes from a word that means search. Can you search him out? Can you begin to plumb the depths of God? And you know the answer to that question, don't you? No. God is incomprehensible. By his grace, we can learn much about him. We contrast comprehensiveness with apprehension. We may learn about him. He tells us so much about himself in his word. We experience the reality of what he reveals to us in his word. But the most profound amongst us has only scratched the surface. You maybe have read all the greatest theologians and memorized not just the catechism, but the larger catechism, the confession of faith. And all you've done is scratch the surface, you see. He is incomprehensible. And it's very important for us to live under that reality every day of our lives. He's incomprehensible. And then he says he's immeasurable. And this is what he expands on in terms of infinity because boys and girls, if something's finite, it's what? It's measurable. If it's infinite, it then cannot be measured. And so he tells us that God cannot be measured. Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? And that means the end uh, to the completion, uh, to measuring him in any way whatsoever. And he illustrates this about the limits of the Almighty. They are high as the heavens. What can you do? Soon it'll be winter. We can go out on a cold winter's night. Have to come out here so you can see the stars. And look up. You see the Milky Way. You see some minuscule portion of our galaxy. And then you begin to realize that behind ours are thousands, perhaps billions of other galaxies. Now, they're finite. I don't think man will ever discover their limits. But they are limited. Uh, because they've been made by the one who has made every star, knows its name, and holds it in place. And you begin to contrast that then with the, with the nature of God. Oh, then look down, he says. They're deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Now, Sheol can refer to the grave itself, the whole reality of death. It's the, it's the place of the wicked dead, word for hell, Hades, it could refer to the very center of the earth, but it's talking about something in its depth that is unmeasurable. You can ponder it all day long and never come to uh, a clear grasp or understanding. And then he brings us to earth itself. He says its measure is longer than the earth. We stand here in Greenville, South Carolina. We don't have the ability to measure the distance from here to the North Pole to the South Pole. Now, by modern science, that is done. But from a human perspective, you can no more understand the limits of God than you can sit here and measure the distance with your eyes 
from the North Pole to the South Pole. Or then go over to the Atlantic Ocean and look across it. And he says, uh, its measure is broader than the sea. Again, the human eye is not able to measure the distance of the sea. We see but 20 miles. We, we see a horizon. And it just stretches far beyond that. You see how these illustrations should bring us to a sense. A sense of the immeasurableness of an infinite God. This is why the Orthodox Calvinists would talk about that the finite cannot hold the infinite. The finite cannot hold the infinite. We can't grasp it. We can't capture it. We can know about him. We can assert truths about him, as Zophar does here. But we don't want to make the mistake that Zophar makes and think, well, <laughs> yes, he's infinite, but you know, I've got the last answer. Zophar then speaks to us, or the Spirit does, about uh, God's sovereignty as the infinite God and his justice. In verse 10, he refers now to the sovereignty of the infinite God. If he passes by or shuts up or calls an assembly, who can restrain him? Three things here that talk about the acts of God. If he passes by, Job earlier spoke of him passing by, working invisibly beyond what we can begin to grasp or comprehend. Passing amongst us to accomplish holy purposes. Shutting up. Some have talked about that as imprisoning or, or cutting off uh, that which he's done with Job. Um, or call an assembly. Uh, call an assembly of the righteous or the blessed to assemble men into his own presence and to deal with them uh, according to his own will. But this one who passes by or shuts up or calls an assembly, the question is, who can restrain him? Can you? Could Job? You see, here he's showing the futility of fighting against an infinite God. The futility of fighting against an infinite God. Perhaps some of you are doing that today. Perhaps you're fighting against holy purposes of God in your life and you don't like them. And you're fighting. Perhaps there's someone today who's not a Christian and you're fighting against God with tooth and toenail. You are at Him with claws. You hate Him. But you see, because He's infinite, He's sovereign. He's all-powerful. If he passes by, if he imprisons, if he calls an assembly, it is folly to try to stand against him. And then he, once again, comes back to God's justice. And now the God's justice is also infinite, for he knows false men, and he sees iniquity without investigating. I like this word, false men. Literally, it is hollow. I can think of a better term to describe the unregenerate than hollow. You might have all worldly intelligence and wealth and power, but spiritually, that person is a hollow person because we're made in the image of God. And only by serving God can, can such a person become, come to any type of, of meaning or real fullness. Because God knows the hollow. And understanding knowing here now is getting to his omniscience that is his justice is exercised by omniscience. He sees iniquity without investigating. Or as the margin of the New American says, um, even he does not consider. 
And this is simply saying, although we have times where the Bible says that God came down to see, that because he's infinite in his knowledge, his justice then is always perfect, and he knows all things. He doesn't need to investigate. Do you know that? He knows every secret of your heart, every motive, every desire, every plan, every motivation. He knows all things, and he knows all things, we could say, intuitively, immediately, perfectly. And thus, his justice is always perfect because he is the infinite God. What a glorious picture of our God that we have here. This God who is infinitely incomprehensible, immeasurable, infinite in all wisdom, infinite in all knowledge and exercise of justice. And Zophar shows us how to respond to him then. Uh, we are to respond with humility in verse 8. They are high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? You see, the infinity of God puts us in our place. If we begin to grasp it, we should be humble before him. This is the irony of Zophar. He can utter these great things about God. And yet they've not struck him in his heart. He's not been humbled by them. That's the difference in head knowledge. What we refer to as an experimental knowledge of God. Not just I can state the facts that God is infinite. But that the infinity of God drives me in my face before him. To humble me. Closely connected, as I've already said, the folly of fighting back against him. Who can restrain him? I mean, Job himself has, has confessed this very thing uh, in his speech. In, in chapter 9, he, he says that um, if one wished to dispute with him, verse 3, he could not answer him once in a thousand times because he's wise in heart and mighty in strength. Or verse 19 of chapter 9, if it's a matter of power, behold, he's a strong one. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? He can summon you, but you cannot summon him. He is the one who calls the assembly, and all must stand before him. So why would you fight against him? Why would you fight today against his holy plans in your life? Why would you live a life of bitterness and grumbling and complaining? Uh, because it's folly. If you're in Christ, this infinitely wise plan of God for your life is perfect. And you'll accomplish nothing by kicking back against it. No, with the psalmist, you come and you rest. You rest in him. And then the third practical result of this is, in verse 12, the necessity of being born again. We all by nature are hollow men, hollow women. We are absolutely ignorant with respect to God. We're dead in our sins and trespasses. So he says... Uh, in verse 12, an idiot, <laughs> an idiot will become intelligent when the foal of a wild donkey is born a man. And actually, here's the word hollow. It's not the word that's used um, uh, for false. That's just a wicked man. Here, that the idiot, the hollow man, will become intelligent about God when the foal of a wild donkey is born of a man. So 
boys and girls, can a donkey give birth to a human being? Hmm? No, can't. Now, he uses a wild donkey here because they're actually a perfect description, as, as we see in the Bible, of a, a, a depraved person. Um, self-willed. Uh, activated only by their own desires. Uh, but the image is, is that uh, the hollow person, the person born in sins and trespasses, cannot begin to understand God. It's what Jesus says in Nicodemus, right? Unless you're born again, you cannot have a saving understanding, let alone enter into the kingdom of God. This infinite God, whom you cannot find out by searching, who himself is immeasurable, who's absolute in wisdom and in the exercise of justice, you will never come to know him in a saving way until the Spirit of Christ moves in your heart to give you a new heart. And I would ask each of you, have you been born again? As you sit here today, boys and girls, have you been born again? Adults have been born again. Well, how do I know? It's really simple. Are you trusting Christ alone for salvation? Do you love him? Do you love God? Do you love his law? Do you hate sin? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? See, those are the marks the family traits of the one who has been born again. And unless you're born again, you're still this hollow person who might know a lot about a lot. In fact, you might even know a lot about God. You maybe could agree with everything that Zophar says, but it has not yet penetrated your heart and soul with a saving knowledge. And so what the Spirit is doing for us here in Zophar is warning us of, because of our prejudice and pride of mishandling our neighbor and mishandling God. And we actually can complete the circle because although the book is Pride and Prejudice, the text shows prejudice and pride, but you see, what's the fountain, what's the root of prejudice? It's pride. It's pride, you see. We think so highly of ourselves and so highly of our own knowledge that we look down on all around us. We've got them all figured out. We don't need to listen. We just need to spout and dictate. The very things that Zophar accused Job of, he was doing. With a multitude of words, he was seeking to overcome this man. But the root of pride then is because we've not been subdued by God. You don't understand God if you are proud. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31, but of his doing, you're in Christ Jesus, sovereign grace, who's become for us wisdom from God, both righteousness and sanctification and redemption, in order that let him who boasts, boast in Jehovah the Lord. It's when you begin to have some inkling of the beauty and grandeur of God that, that you and I are humbled and can begin to walk before him and then live in a proper way with our neighbor. What I want you to do above all right now is to look up, not just at the stars, but at the one who made the stars. And marvel. Marvel. Be filled with wonder and awe 
that your worship and your obedience will flow out of this God who indeed has revealed himself to us as incomprehensible and immeasurable, perfect in all wisdom, perfect in all knowledge and, and all justice and all righteousness. Glory in him. As Paul instructs us in that text of meditation, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.